You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we looked at the um, beginning portion of this chapter last week, and we'll continue working our way through this chapter today. I do want us to start back and as we read our text for this morning, to read it in context by reading it from verse 1. So specifically, we'll be in verses 7 through 12 today. But let's begin uh, reading in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished. For 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. From the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. Last week we saw that while Revelation is viewed as a a book about the future, about future events, we saw that Revelation chapter 12 specifically uh, is about past events. And we saw from that uh, verses 1 through 6 that Christmas encourages Christians because it inaugurates the defeat of the great dragon, guaranteeing that the cosmic war that has raged since the beginning will end with Christ victorious at the end. That essentially we have a picture here of this, this war that rages between Satan and his forces and God and his forces. And it's been raging since, since the creation of the world when Satan came in and deceived Adam and Eve. And um, God made the promise of sending one who would ultimately defeat the serpent. And we see um, the serpent trying to defeat and trying to ruin God's plans. Uh, this woman, we said, represents the, uh, the culmination of God's people and and as she, through Mary, gives birth to the Messiah, that Satan is waiting and, and ready to devour him, but, but God preserves his life, God keeps Jesus safe throughout his life, allows Christ to die at the right time, and then he's exalted and ascended into heaven um, and spared. And so we saw last week that we can trust God to keep his word, right? That uh, God did everything necessary to keep everything in place so that the Messiah could come. We saw and highlighted some Old Testament passages where Satan attempted to thwart God's plans by ruining uh, the the messianic line, right? Whether it was through um, uh, uh, Cain and Abel and Cain defeating Abel and, and, and ruining that, God brought Seth onto the scene. 
right? God spared mankind, even though man had become so evil that the flood was necessary, God found favor with Noah. God preserved the children of Israel throughout the wilderness time. God preserved the kingly line at various times. When, when it looked like all the descendants of David would be extinguished, God preserved that kingly line. God spared the nation of Israel when, um, when Haman sought to, uh, to kill them and wipe them out in the book of Esther. God continually saves mankind by keeping the plans for the Messiah intact. We can trust God to keep his word. We can trust God to exalt his son. We said that, that God's in the business of making much of Jesus and much of ex- exaltation of his son. And so if God is committed to that, how much more should we be committed to that as well? How should, how should we not um, consider whether our life is worth living for Christ? If God is willing to exalt Jesus, how much more should we then devote our life to seeing the exaltation of Jesus? And then we saw at the end, God tr- or trusting God to protect his people. Uh, that Satan time is very limited, and uh, we see God sparing God's people <coughs> in the wilderness. And we said wilderness has negative connotations, but all throughout Scripture, we see the wilderness as a place where God provides and God protects and God teaches and God nourishes. It's a place where we ultimately have to rely upon God. And so we can trust God to protect us even in the midst of the wilderness. Today we come to verses 7 through 12, and I want us to specifically see again the defeat of Satan at the first coming of Jesus. So our summary sentence for today, Christ's first coming set us free from accusation, allowing us to operate from a position of victory in our dealings with Satan and demons. Christ's first coming set us free from accusation, allowing us to operate now from a position of victory in our dealings with Satan and demons. For our kids, Satan no longer has a right to accuse us because Jesus has forgiven us. We've been set free from accusation through the first coming of Jesus. We see that in our text. We see the great accuser being cast out of heaven. He's been thrown down to the earth. Salvation has now come through the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ. The accuser has been thrown down. Verse 11 highlights the fact that we as Christians now have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Satan no longer has a right to accuse us because Jesus has forgiven us. There's an interesting song that you may want to listen to this week by Shane and Shane, who I don't typically listen to, but this was a song that I remembered um, it's called Embracing Accusations, and it talks about this very topic, that, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, Satan casts accusations at us based on our inability to be perfect, and, and uh, the, the song highlights the fact that those accusations are very true, that we are certainly sinful and we have no right to stand in the presence of God, but it's through Christ and Christ alone that we have been given access to the throne. Um, and so you may want to you may want to listen to that psalm this week because it certainly goes along with our topic uh, for today. <clears throat> so let's unpack that sentence: Christ coming to set us free from accusation, giving us a position of victory now to operate when it comes with dealing with Satan and demons. The first point that I want to draw your attention to this morning is that Christ has won a great victory. Christ has won a great victory, and for our kids, Christ won that at the cross. Christ has won. A great victory. We certainly, as a church here at Sovereign Hope, want to continue to keep our focus and attention on the second coming of Jesus. We don't ever want to lose sight of that. We don't ever want to become so engulfed in the things of this world and the things that our life 
uh, is about right now, that we, we lose sight of the fact that this is an eternity, that, that there's an eternity that is to come, that we look forward to, that we hope in. Um, but we don't want to so focus on the second coming that we lose sight of the fact that a great victory has been won at that first coming of Jesus, uh, that he came and defeated Satan in, in ways that are so important to us today. And I want us to see that um, as we look at the text and then some text that we'll pull from uh, in various places throughout Scripture. But Christ has won a great victory. We see the war arising in heaven in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. We see the great dragon being cast down, and then we hear this loud voice spring up in heaven, a voice that celebrates the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ. We don't know who this voice is. We don't know where it's coming from, but it's probably very similar to the, to the, the voices of adoration that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, a, a singing type of response to this great victory that's been won over Satan. A couple of points I want us to see in, in how we see Christ winning this great victory. First of all, the environment of heaven declares the victory of Christ. The environment of heaven declares the victory of Christ. Satan's defeat results in the worship of heaven. God's power, his rule have been put on display in the hearts of his people. We see that again in verse 10, that that loud voice in heaven ringing true that salvation has come, the power of God has been demonstrated, the authority of Christ has come, accusations have been eliminated, and people are now conquering Satan because of Christ's blood and because of the word of their testimony. The environment of, Satan, or of heaven declares Christ's victory over Satan. Christ's kingdom has come. The enemy has lost its place. The brethren are overcoming. So we see the environment of heaven kind of changing here. Previously, Satan and his angels have a presence in heaven. They've now been cast out. There's a worship service that ensues once again with with this voice crying out the truths about Christ and his kingdom and the authority of God and what that means, and it ultimately showing that, that God is saving people back to him, that people are enduring to the point of death that they don't love their lives to to the point where they would rather cling to their life than die for Christ. So all these things are transpiring, and it's a point of worship in heaven as this this scene has changed now. Satan and his demons are no longer allowed access to heaven. We know that we've already seen Christ has ascended into heaven. The environment of heaven declares this great victory of Christ. But number two, the blood of the lamb declares the victory of Christ. We see the environment pointing to this victory of Christ, but we see that this text highlights for us the blood of the lamb declaring the victory of Christ. Christ's work has dealt a severe blow to Satan's power. Christ's work has dealt a severe blow to Satan's power. I had you this morning highlighting passages of Scripture that talk about the 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 limited power, the limited ability of Satan. So we, we talk about Satan being powerful. We talk about Satan having uh, authority and, and being over this world, but we also talk about that being very limited. And I wanted us to see some passages that highlight that for us. And I think one is Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this is the gospel, right? That, that we were dead in our sins. We, we couldn't fix that. But God makes us alive together with him. He quickens us through the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes and our minds because other passages tell us that Satan has blinded us to the gospel, blinded us to Christ. But Christ comes in, God through the Holy Spirit opens our minds, makes us alive, and he forgives us of our trespasses. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He nailed it to the cross. And what did that do? What did all that do? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And Christ has accomplished a great victory through his blood. He has disarmed those who would have been actively against us. We were dead in our sins, but Christ has come in and canceled that debt against us. <coughs> he's forgiven us of our trespasses, and he's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus is talking to his followers. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Not only has Satan been cast out of heaven, no longer, no, not only has his demons been cast out, he has been exalted, he has been lifted up, and now he's drawing all people to himself. Remember that discussion, that dialogue in Genesis chapter 3, that Satan wins a victory by taking Adam and Eve into deception, and they turn from God, and they eat of the tree, and now they're, they're destined for death. Seemingly, all of their offspring, too, would then be destined for death. And, and Jesus communicates, no, that's not how it's going to work. I'm going to create enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and I'm going to rescue people back to me. Jesus now declares that to be happening here to his people. He says, the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. I'm going to be lifted up, and I'm going to start drawing all people to myself. He does that through his blood, through his work. He paid the price for all of Satan's accusations. The environment of heaven declares this victory in Revelation chapter 12. The blood of the lamb is sung about here in Revelation chapter 12, declaring that great victory of Christ. And then number three, the third component that I think we see here about the victory of Christ is the changed lives of the saints declaring that victory. They have conquered him, verse 11 says. Satan being cast out, the accuser being cast down. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. I want us to pause there for just a second. Talked about how do you, this morning we talked about how do you see Satan being defeated currently. We're certainly waiting for this great defeat of Satan. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and put an end to Satan. But how do we see him currently being defeated? The thing that I wrote down is that Satan's defeat results in the victory of the brethren and the changed lives of the saints. That, that every day as people come to Christ, it's another defeat of Satan, another soul that's been lost to his kingdom, Right? <clears throat> Scripture talks about us being transferred from darkness into light. So every single time someone's soul is converted from darkness to light, it's another victory. It's another, it's another defeating blow to Satan and his purposes. It says that, that these people are being saved. 
They're overcoming him by the blood of the lamb. And then it's being demonstrated by the word of their testimony. And what does that mean? They love not their lives even to death. I wrote in my notes, they no longer fear even death when they're aligned with Christ. Basically, what was being said here is that that the gospel has such a transforming effect that someone will stand with Christ and not leave Christ even if it means their death, right? But we talk about the fact that, and we're probably not ever gonna be in a situation where we're gonna be asked that. Hey, would you rather stay with Christ or die? We're probably never gonna get to the point of that. But for some of us, it's a good thing because we're willing to walk away from Christ for far lesser things than death. I put in my notes a question for us to kind of think about and contemplate. What is the biggest threat to you that would cause you to yield to this temptation to walk away from Christ? Like this is, this is the extreme situation. Here we're being talked about, here's being talked about the idea that the gospel saves people to the point that they will stay with Christ even if it means their death. But if you back up a little bit, what are some other things that would be a progression to that extreme? Right? Like we talk about suffering, and, and we're so quick to say, in a, in a, in a, in I think in an act of humility, that, well, we don't suffer like other people suffer around the world that are Christians. But if you really just look at the definition of suffering, suffering is, is um, uh, the state of undergoing hardship. Man, some things are hard for some people that aren't hard for others. So, so I think all of us are, through Satan's, through Satan's attempts, we all endure some levels of suffering if we are not yielding to things that would cause us to walk away from Christ. So every temptation that we don't give into is really a form of suffering. We are not yielding to things that would entice us to walk away from Christ. The, the, the point of the passage here is that, man, the gospel has such a transforming effect that even if the extreme death was given to you. The gospel transforms you to where you stay with Christ. They don't fear death. I put down in my notes, they also don't fear unhappiness. Right? Man, Satan tempts us to give in to sin because if we don't, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be content. We're not going to be satisfied. Man, every time we yield to sin, especially those sins that are are premeditated, those sins that, um, that we actually think through and determine to do, Man, those sins that we yield to, that's far less than death. The gospel should be changing us to where those premeditated type sins are constantly decreasing in our life. It's what the gospel does. The blood of the lamb allows us to overcome Satan and his devices. Even if it means Satan kills us, we gain the victory because victory defined in these terms is if, if Satan can throw anything at you, even death, and you don't walk away from Christ, then you've won. Man, you've won. The gospel has penetrated your heart. You've won the victory. Even death couldn't get you to walk away from Christ. <clears throat> but if not death, what, what, what things prior to death potentially could? Man, I want the gospel to be so effective in my life that even death would cause me to stay true to Christ. But to get to the point where I could say that death won't even cause me to walk away from Christ, it means that a lot of other things can't make me walk away from Christ either, right? Some of the things that we, we know, some of, some of you know people that have, that have abandoned Christianity for various reasons, things that, that God failed to do for them. 
ways that God failed to come through for them. Man, that's not death. Even death, this passage says, should cause us not to walk away from Christ if the blood of the Lamb has really been effective in our hearts. The changed lives of the saints declare the victory of Christ. So we have this environment in heaven, the blood of the lamb being talked about, the changed lives of the saints being highlighted. All of these things point to Christ winning a great victory in his first coming. Number two, Satan's power has been further limited. Satan's power has been further limited. (coughs) Again, our summary sentence carries the idea that Christ's first coming set us free from accusation so that we then operate from a position of victory over Satan. Christ won the great victory through his first coming. Satan's power has been further limited. So Satan was already a limited being by the very fact that he was created by God, right? He's created by God. Um, But now, through the first coming of Christ, his power has been even further limited. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 Christ had sent out 72 of his followers and they come back after uh, doing ministry and it says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Satan's power is being limited in ways that it previously was not. We'll talk about this more as we get into Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 20, when it talks about the binding of Satan, okay? But Satan's ability to deceive the world has been limited now in ways that previously it wasn't limited. That the gospel is going forth in ways that previously it was not. What happened at the cross where, where, where Jesus disarms Satan canceling the record of debt against us. The gospel is now going forth in ways that previously it was not. So Satan was already a limited being in power. He's been even further limited in a couple of different ways. First of all, his presence in heaven has been evicted. His presence in heaven has been evicted. Like, like I don't, so we talked last week. I think this passage is highlighting, one, the initial fall of Satan and his demons out of heaven. But we know from other passages of Scripture that Satan was allowed back into heaven, right? Job chapter one, Job chapter two, both highlight scenes where Satan is in the presence of God in heaven talking about Job, right? He brings the great accusation that Job only loves you because it personally benefits him. Like, why would Job not love you? You give him a bunch of things. Of course he loves you. Take all those things away, then Job won't like you anymore, right? (coughs) There's also the passage in... um, Zechariah chapter 3. Let's read that one because that one's probably less familiar to everybody. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. This is Joshua the high priest, not Joshua the one who led them into the promised land. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him who said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord 
was standing by. You read this chapter and you get this picture of Satan accusing the high priest of Israel at that time for, for, for being uh, imperfect in the same ways that we are. Accusations coming towards one of God's anointed because of his imperfections. Uh, and that's taking place in heaven. It's taking place in the presence of the Lord. And so we see these situations where Satan is given access back into heaven with God. Uh, but I think this chapter in chapter 12 highlights for us that at the, at the cross, at the ascension of Jesus, that type of arrangement has ended. That there's, there's no purpose now. Get this. There's no purpose for Satan to be in heaven And I'm stating this based off the fact that the only reasons we ever see Satan in heaven is to bring accusations against God's people. Satan is no longer there because his his ability to do so, his purpose in being there has been completely removed as well. All right, Satan who wants to be God has been defeated by Michael. Interesting to note, Michael the archangel, his name means who is like God. So you have Satan who says, I want to be like God, and Michael, whose, whose name means who can be like God. They're, they're pictured as duking it out, as fighting, and Michael winning this great battle. I think it's ultimately Christ winning the battle. It's being pictured through Michael because I think Michael is probably a better um, equal counterpart to Satan than, than God certainly is, right? Like it's not this dualistic perspective that, that God and Satan are on equal grounds and one is good and one is bad. It's God and everything else underneath him that he created, so if you're looking for an equal opposite, Satan and, and Michael are probably the closest thing as they are both angelic beings that God created. They're pictured as fighting it out and Michael winning the battle that then casts Satan and his demons out of heaven. He's been removed from heaven, but you'll remember in Revelation chapter 12 that the place has been prepared for the woman in heaven. Verse six, um, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So, so the environment's changing. God's casting Satan and his demons out, but he's preparing places for his people. Satan has been evicted from heaven. And then, as I've said, number two, the reason for that is his purpose in heaven has been extinguished. The effect of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is that Satan has lost his role as the accuser of the brethren. His grounds for accusation have been removed. Let me explain this to you. Back in Romans chapter 3, when we're, when we're having the gospel unpacked by Paul, Paul's building this case that everybody's guilty before God. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, he gives us kind of a, an understanding of how the gospel has been at work in the Old Testament. <coughs> it says, whom God put forward, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins, right? So everything in the Old Testament is leading to Christmas, right? It's leading to that first coming of Jesus where he's gonna grow up and be a perfect lamb to be slaughtered on behalf of the sins of mankind. But until that happens, God is passing over these sins, right? Adam and Eve don't die immediately. God delays judgment upon sin because he knows he's gonna send Jesus, Satan doesn't have full understanding of that, right? And so Satan's looking around and saying, well, you're excusing people that aren't perfect. You're excusing sinners. You're letting sinners into your presence after death, and they don't deserve to be there. So we have this picture in Scripture of of Satan accusing us. Man, they're not worthy to be in your presence. God's like, I know they're not. I know they're not. 
I know they're not. Romans chapter 3, he passes over those sins. He delays judgment so that he can pour it out on Jesus. Well, now that the gospel becomes even more clear, this is how God saves mankind. He sent his son who to be a perfect lamb for us. It forgives us of our sins. Colossians 2, he nailed the record of our debt on the cross. Right? He erases that. Satan has no more reason to accuse us. He can't accuse us now because we've been excused. Our presence in heaven has been legitimized. Have you ever been to visit somebody in like a secure place where you can't get through without certain credentials? But as soon as that person shows up, the person at the front desk realizes, okay, you have a relationship with this person. You're now given like free access into that secure place. Not because of who you are, but because of who you know, right? Like I don't know anybody that's in like extreme secure places. So all of my references would be like far lower security. But like, even if you go visit some of our guys that work at corporate Chick-fil-A, right? Like you can't get on campus without being on a list, right? You have to, have a, you have to be on the list at the front door, at the front gate. Hey, I'm here to see Alex McLeod or hey, I'm here to see Marcus. I'm here to eat lunch with one of these guys, right? Then they let you pass that gate. Then you have to come to the front desk and you get a name tag that says your name, but you have to wait there until these guys show up to get you. And then once they show up to get you, man, now you have full access to everything that's there at Chick-fil-A because of who you walk with, because of who you are with, right? You can't accuse me of, of being in the wrong place. Nobody questions who I am when I'm standing with a Chick-fil-A employee there, right? To the point that when Adam was working in the kitchen, man, I'd, I'd walk back into the kitchen with him. Like I could go into the back with him and nobody stopped me and said, hey, hey, you're not allowed back here. I was allowed back there because I was with Adam, right? So the picture here is we have access to heaven now. We, our presence is legitimized, not because of us, but because of who we are aligned with. The blood of the lamb gives us victory to where Satan can't accuse us. Satan can't say, you don't belong here anymore. I do belong here because I'm with him. I'm with Jesus, right? So previously, we have this picture of, of, a, of an accuser in heaven who's accusing us of our sin. Gives great meaning to 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Man, you know who's standing there now in heaven? It's not Satan. Satan's not standing there accusing us. Jesus is standing there affirming us before the Father. Like, don't sin, John says. Stop sinning. You're a Christian. The gospel, you, you, you've responded to the gospel. You should be committed to Jesus even to the point of death. So these, these temptations that pop up that would, that would cause you to question your allegiance and do I want to stay with what Jesus tells me to do or do I, do I want to value my happiness more, my contentment more, what I think will satisfy me more, right? When, when, that, when, that's being, when that's being worked out, John says, man, don't sin, right? Like the gospel should be changing you. But if you do sin, if you do sin, it's not Satan in heaven that's accusing you. It's Jesus who's standing in heaven now affirming you. Hey, he still belongs here. He still belongs here. Yeah, I know he just sinned, but he still belongs here because I didn't sin, right? I took those accusations. I took those sins. I nailed them to the cross. That person has full access now. I know he just sinned, but don't worry about it. I took care of it. 
Satan's purpose in heaven has been extinguished. He doesn't need to be there anymore. I can't tell you for sure that he doesn't have access to God's presence anymore, but I can tell you that for what I see in Scripture, he was there to accuse, and he has no grounds for accusation anymore. The picture seems to be he's been cast out. He's been thrown out. He has no reason to be there. Number three, Christians await Satan's final defeat. Christians await Satan's final defeat. For our kids, Jesus is coming to destroy Satan. So, so he won a great victory over Satan. Man, I think every time a soul is saved, it's another victory over Satan. I think every time a Christian dies, still committed to Jesus, it's a victory over Satan. Right? To the point of death. Even if I'm not killed for my faith, living to the point of death and at my deathbed, still being the one who says yes to Jesus, that's a victory over Satan. That's a soul who endured to the end. That's a soul who is being welcomed into the presence of God. That's a soul who will now stand with his advocate, and his presence will be legitimized in heaven when his soul arrives there. That's a victory, a victory over Satan. But there's a great final defeat that's coming. But as we wait for that, number one, Christian endurance is a sign that salvation has occurred. Satan as the great deceiver is now powerless against God's people if we remain on guard. So so I preface that with, if we're truly a believer, Satan has no power over us. Matthew 24, 24. Satan and his great deception. For, if false, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But it's not possible, right? Like it's not possible for a true Christian to give in to Satan's schemes. <clears throat> How do we know if we're a true Christian though? Well, we're, we're a true Christian if we don't give in to Satan's schemes. And part of that is we yield to the warning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. This is in response to church discipline. In the, in the previous uh, letter, they had enacted church discipline against this guy who was in sexual sin. Now it seems like things have gotten worked out. It says in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So if it's in reference to this guy in 1 Corinthians, what seems to have been the case now is church discipline has worked. This guy has been brought to sorrow over his sin, and Paul's now telling the church, you need to welcome this guy back in. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. And Paul highlights the, the importance of handling church discipline right so that Satan's purposes aren't accomplished. He's like, man, Satan has, has purposes and designs for ruining the church and breeding bitterness and, and all kinds of problems. He says, we gotta do this, we gotta do it right so that Satan doesn't get a foothold. So, so we're protected from Satan as believers, but we have to be on guard against his devices, devices that we're supposed to be aware of. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I'm afraid, Paul says, 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul says, man, I don't want to see you be deceived. You ought to be able to say, well, Paul, a real Christian can't be deceived. It's not possible. Paul says, the way that it's not possible is that we offer these warnings to you to hold to the gospel, to know the gospel, to not entertain false gospels so that you do remain true to Christ to the point of death. Satan has no power over us if we remain on guard. Satan's works are being reduced as each soul is saved. Matthew 12, 29 is a passage that talks about the binding of Satan right now. Jesus says the gospel, saving people, it's like tying up somebody and stealing all the stuff out of their house. Like they they can't do anything about it, right? And, And Jesus is talking in terms of him rescuing people out of the clutches of Satan. He's saying, I've tied him up. I've tied him up. He, he has no authority now. He has no accusation now. I am rescuing people from his kingdom into mine. I've bound him. Christian endurance is a sign that salvation has occurred. 1 John 3, 8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, right? It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why I I shared with you just a minute ago that that a Christian who endures to the end, who stays true to Christ until he dies, that's another victory over Satan. That's another victory won over Satan because it's another soul that was saved, that endured to the end. Christian endurance is a sign that salvation has occurred. Number two, Christian suffering is a sign that Satan's defeat will occur. I love this picture here in in Revelation chapter 12. Satan's cast down. He's been defeated. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan's battle is now for our bodies since he has lost the war for our souls. We're going to see here in the remaining portion of chapter 12 that Satan goes all in to attack us as Christians. Can't hurt us from a soul, from a soul perspective, but he can certainly try to harm our bodies. But the picture here is of a defeated snake who's still got some harm to him, but, but man, his time is limited. I don't know if you've ever uh, killed a snake before. But when you, when you start to strike at a snake and you, you injure a snake or you even cut the head off of a snake, you still see activity from that snake, right? Like, there, like there's, there's anger and there's thrashing and, and there's, there's an attempt to, to salvage whatever they can, whatever it can to protect itself, to enact whatever it can towards that that has injured it, right? Like it'll strike it. It'll still try to, it'll still try to bite as, it, as its muscles are, are dying and it's, and it's kind of being wiped out. And its body will flay all around. That's the picture that I get of Satan right here. Man, a decisive blow has gone to his head, right? Like the serpent's head has been crushed by, by Jesus on the cross. He's not fully dead yet. Like he's flailing around and he's doing whatever damage he can. He knows that his time is short. Man, there's hope there for the believer that his time is short. Like a wounded snake that can't recover from that blow 
Satan is doing what he can with the limited time that he has left. Which then kind of left me with a question. Man, if we're talking about Satan, and here's Satan who says, man, my time is short. I'm going to do whatever I can in my shortened time to wreak as much evil as possible, right? My time is short. That's what the Bible says here. He is coming in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That ought to be convicting to us, though. Like, do we come with the same motivation for good knowing that our time is short? Like, we haven't been blown a, 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 we haven't been given a blow of defeat. We've been given a, a, an extension of hope, right? Like, like, our time is short here on this earth, but man, eternity is before us. Satan, his eternity is before him too, but he wants to wreak as much evil as he can knowing that his time on this earth is short. Man, in the same way that Satan goes all in to wreak evil because his time is short, how much more should we also not go all in to do as much good as possible knowing that our time is short? Some application that I want you to remember from from this section today. First of all, remember that our enemy is a defeated foe. Our enemy is a defeated foe. Think about this. We're talking about Satan in terms of being a great serpent. We saw in the Old Testament, he's even described as a Leviathan, like this sea monster, this great dragon. He's got power. He's in heaven. He has an army. Michael and his angels have to do everything they can to cast him out of heaven. It ought to create a, 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 a fear in us about this being. And yet what James chapter 4 tells us is, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's defeated. He's defeated to the point that, that me, as a growing Christian, can resist the great dragon in his best efforts. If I draw near to God, God will draw near to me. If I cleanse my hands and I purify my heart, if I mourn and weep, if I humble myself before the Lord, man, Satan... I've resisted him and he will flee from me. This great dragon with all this great power, this isn't, this isn't you have to go get a bunch of extra spiritual help to do this. Man, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. First Peter chapter five. He's a roaring lion, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But verse nine, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is for everybody. All of us have the power to resist him. He's a defeated foe. Number two, remember our salvation is a settled reality. By his blood, we've been set free from condemnation. Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Man, that's the reason that nobody can accuse us. There's no condemnation if we're in Christ. Like we have the right credentials because we are in Christ. No condemnation. Why? Because Christ has done everything necessary, right? He did everything necessary. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned it. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. 
to the point that at the end of chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Not Satan. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, right? Endure to the point of death. Don't love your life more than, uh, than it should. You should be willing to die for Christ. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want us to, um, I want us to sing this morning in closing with Tyson like we normally do, but I want to watch a quick video to show why we sing, right? Like we, we see this victory in heaven and then we see exaltation by people in heaven for these truths. Man, I want your natural response when you hear the word proclaimed. Man, we ought to, we ought to sing and rejoice in that. That there's, there's in, a, in a way, we are attacking Satan by gathering this morning because what we're saying, we are gathering here this morning saying, I want to endure to the end. Jesus has saved me. I want to endure to the end. I love this um, selection from John Piper back from 1985 about why we sing. Jehoshaphat aims to conquer Moab with a choir. God had said the battle is mine to fight and Jehoshaphat says, well, let's put the choir at the front. Verse 21, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy array as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, shouts of victory before the battle commences because God had promised it. I think the writer of this book wants us to learn from verse 22, even though victory belongs to God, the singing of the choir is the occasion for the victory. Singing is not merely a response to grace. Singing is a means of grace. Singing is power. Spirit comes and does something. Jehoshaphat sang with the choir, and Moab and Ammon and Seir killed themselves. And when Paul and Silas sang, it says, God shook the prison. Surely the lesson is there is power when the people of God sing. Jim Elliot, you remember? 
January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three others, they were there at the river waiting to see whether the Alcas would come out, the Indians to whom they were going to minister. The last word that the headquarters received from them, according to Elizabeth Elliott in her book, The Shadow of the Almighty, was that they sang a hymn before they crossed over. And what they sang was this, we go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, needing more each day thy grace to know, yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. And they all got killed before 4.30 in the afternoon. And God protected them. He protected them from unbelief, from cowardice, from fear, from going home and buying a house in the suburbs and saying, somebody else can reach the Alcas. There was victory on that afternoon. It's reverberated over the last 30 years and it'll continue on into eternity. There are two weapons that we have to fight Satan with in worship. The Word of God and song. I beseech you, give heed to the word and sing with all your heart. And so I want us to sing today because we sing from a point of victory. We sing reminding ourselves of the truths that we've talked about this morning. And I want us to carry that over into our family worship for this week and I want you to pick out some of your favorite favorite Christmas songs and spend time reading those lyrics together or, or singing those together as a celebration of the first coming of Jesus and the defeat of Satan. A lot of our Christmas songs talk about that victory. A lot of our Christmas songs talk about what Christ came to do. Um, and so I would encourage you to, to pick some of those out and talk about the lyrics with your family. Uh, sing some of those songs together to celebrate Christmas. But not just simply singing them because they're Christmas songs, but really draw attention to the fact that we're singing them because we celebrate the first coming of Jesus and what he did to defeat Satan. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the truths that are contained in Scripture. We thank you for the gospel that Jesus came to remove all grounds of accusation against us. God, we look forward to the day as we endure to the end of being welcomed into your presence and knowing that when we stand with you for eternity, we have the right credentials. And it's not because of anything about us, it's because of who we're with. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him. We thank you for protecting everything necessary to be able to send him in the fullness of time to be our Savior, to win this victory over Satan, to disarm him to remove accusations against us. God, we thank you that Jesus stands in heaven today as our advocate, that when we leave here today and we sin before the sun goes down, our place in heaven is not in jeopardy because our advocate stands there testifying that his perfection, his blood is what saves us. Father, I pray that you'd be honored as we sing and celebrate that together as we leave today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.